Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome in, Boston sports fans everywhere. Episode 7 of Boston's Big Four on the Believe Podcast Network. Home base for all things Boston sports for the fans of the City of Champions. Where this business is a 24-7, 365-day-a-year passion. You can find the show on Apple, Spotify, and Google. New releases every single Tuesday. I'm your host, Stephen Ace Norman. If you're looking to interact with the show or stay up to date with it, you can check out our major social media platforms. I'm talking Facebook. I'm talking Instagram. I'm talking an email account. I know, mind-blowing. The info for all of that is on our webpage, which is at Believe.com, spelled B-L-E-A-V. Plenty to get to here on Episode 7 of the show. There was a great weekend of divisional round football, possibly the greatest divisional round of football I've ever seen in my lifetime. I can't speak for everyone else, but in my 32 years, that was probably the best four games the NFL has put out in an individual weekend in the playoffs ever. And the Patriots weren't anywhere near it. (laughs) I mean, they weren't even sniffing it. So as much as we would love to talk, or I would love to talk about that divisional round weekend, the Patriots weren't in it. There are thoughts that come from that round that I think relate to the Patriots and how they move forward, what it means for them now here in 2022 And going forward, and I would like to get to those thoughts, but I'm not going to do it right off the top. Because as much as we've talked Patriots here for the first seven weeks, each and every week, we sprinkled in some other material, which I'm not apologizing for. They were the hottest team in Boston, the most talked about team in Boston, the lead story in Boston sports. So you go with that. You go with that. But now that their season has come to an end, we will still hit on them, but they're not going to be the lead tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this. I would like to start on the hardwood with the unlikable bunch that we know as the Boston Celtics. Usually when you don't talk about a team for a few weeks, a lot happens within those weeks. With the games that take place just about every other night, few games a week, and a lot changes. Or a lot usually changes. You know, you have your ups, you have your downs. The last time that we talked about the Celtics and we spent a legitimate amount of time on them, I believe it was episode two. They had just returned after a horrible road trip out west that saw them go one and four, I believe it was. Dropped some games to teams that were missing key players. The Celtics blew some leads. You know, typical Celtics type of things. They had returned home, just returned home to beat the Milwaukee Bucks. And it was a big win at that time. It brought their record up to a wonderful, stellar 14-14. and And if you remember back to then, the picture that was being painted was they had such a poor road trip that Ime had to bring them back and do a film study with them. A hundred clips of them getting owned out west. And they reacted to it. It was hard to see. It wasn't easy to watch. It was tense at times, but it was needed. So let's fast forward. Late January. We don't need to go over 
weeks of basketball, right? I'm sure there were ups, there were downs, but let's look at the big picture. Where's this team, right? Well, that film study, it had to course correct them, had to bring a shining light to their issues and deficiencies and struggles so that they could get back to the practice court and figure it all out, right? So let's fast forward, January 25th, two weeks, a little bit more than two weeks, I should say, away from the trade deadline. The Celtics obviously had their early season turbulence. So fresh off of a big W in Washington, a team that's been largely ahead of you for most of the season, where are the Celtics? They must be. They have to be a top six seed by now, right? With Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, these emerging superstars, they have to be sitting amongst the top six teams, at least six teams in the East, right? Nah, just just kidding. Just kidding. Those young guys, they haven't quite reached their, their potency yet, their, their pinnacle yet. The Celtics are 24 and 24. And I crack up because I'm watching TV here, whether it be a local sports station, whether it be the local news, which you know is not always the hardest hitting when it comes to the sports cycle. And at the bottom of the ticker, it says the Celtics improved to 24 and 24 with a win over the Washington Wizards. Now, I'm not criticizing the local news station, the local sports station, or the guy or girl who writes the ticker news on the bottom of the news. No, no, no. I'm making fun of the team that has two budding superstars, two top 25 players in the NBA, who I'll focus on more in a minute here, but are currently sitting as the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. Behind the Charlotte Hornets, a team that has all the players that you couldn't fit on your roster on theirs, and they're better than you, (laughs) Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, amongst others. They're just a half game up on the Washington Wizards, who are in the 10th seed, and you're tied with the same record as the rebuilding Raptors from Toronto, who just because you have a better conference record, you're above in the eighth seed rather than being in the ninth seed. These are teams that you were supposed to pass a long time ago. And I'm not just talking this season, but as we look at this season, this team's no closer than they were a month ago to figuring out what was plaguing them a month ago. It's just carried over. They're the same team at 24 and 24 that they were at 14 and 14 with the same ailing, consistent problems, which is inconsistent shooting, and a lack of shooting depth that shows up and makes open shots. They're in love with the three-point shot, which I get it. This is the modern-day NBA. Everyone's in love with the three-point shot. This team has career lows for Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Al Horford. So on a night where they aren't hitting shots, I don't want to see them hucking up 46 of them like they did versus the Hornets last week, where they went 14 of 46 from three-point, and they were shooting a mere 30%, and they were taking more threes than twos when they couldn't hit a shot. Every team has a flaw. Every team has a weakness. That's the reality of sports. But how flawed a team is and how many weaknesses they have is a completely different story. Now, you look at the Celtics team and you say, okay, their lack of shooting and consistent shooting is a problem. If that was the problem, then Brad Stevens could go out at the trade deadline and make a trade, swing a trade for a Buddy Heald. 
that would drastically improve your three-point shooting and your overall shooting. But that's just one on a laundry list of issues for Brad Stevens. Shooting is just one of many issues for this team. They have problems on the defensive end with switches and their big specifically. They have problems with effort at times on that end of the floor. On the glass this year, they're ranked 29th in rebounding the basketball. And that's not even to mention the lack of cohesion that they show on the offensive side on nights where shooting woes aren't glaring. Those are just a few. Just a few. I know, just a few small, minute ones that, oh yeah, by the way, are crucial for winning in the NBA. But like an open bar to winning, there are plenty more issues where that came from. But the one that sticks out to me the most and rolls over into another critical flaw that's not going anywhere with time is leadership and the lack of emergence of a true leader. This team doesn't have a natural leader on it. It doesn't. It has guys that want that role, that want that title, that want that clout of leading a team, but they don't have it naturally. It's all forced. Everything they do is forced. Jalen Brown's the smartest man in every room he ever walked into. And when things aren't going right, it's because people aren't doing it his way. Jason Tatum is quiet. He likes to lead just by playing his game. But he's not going to shake you and say, are you flipping kidding me? Give some effort. Show some heart. Marcus Smart is going to dive on every loose ball. He's going to take charges. He's going to get in people's faces. But at the end of the day, he's going to rub you the wrong way. The intangibles that he brings to the game are similar to Draymond Green, with the exception that Draymond Green understands his role and doesn't overstep it and doesn't act and play the game like he's Clay Thompson or Steph Curry throwing up three-pointers. He understands and accepts his role. Marcus doesn't do that. Breaking down this team this year is no different than the past couple years. No different. You don't have to be a basketball savant, an expert, Charles Barkley, or Kenny the Jet Smith, or Shaq on the set of TNT, or Legler on ESPN, or any of these other basketball guys with knowledge up the yin-yang. It's simple, it's point blank, and it's in front of your face. What this team lacks and what's holding them back the most is leadership, and their lack thereof, true leadership. Now, maybe that could have been Al Horford a few years back when Al was younger and a better player and those young guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart didn't earn the titles that they've been given now or didn't accomplish what they felt was an NBA championship, what was really just a loss in the Eastern Conference Finals. Maybe that could have been Al back then, but Kyrie was in the way. But now you don't have anyone on this roster that has the natural qualities that people gravitate to, that people want to follow, that people want to listen to, that people stay locked in because of. Many were hoping, myself included, that Ime Udoka, an ex-player, a guy that these guys respected and gave a vote of confidence to, would be that guy to galvanize them and pull them out of this funk of my turn, your turn, my turn, I'm hero, your hero, where's your cape, here's my cape type of basketball that this team plays. But it hasn't worked out that way. It hasn't worked out that way. And the role players that the Celtics have surrounded these guys with haven't given them what they need. So right, it's the shooting. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's a point guard. When are we going to look ourselves in the face and say, "Eh, eh, you know what it is? It's the two guys 
It's the two guys who are supposed to be the leaders that are the biggest problems. The best players aren't always the ones to blame for glaring issues. But this time around, in this case study, they are. I mean, listen, I have never heard more excuses for two Boston guys, for two Boston players, who haven't won diddly in my entire life. It's always everyone else's fault. It's the head coach, it's the GM, it's the role players, it's the lack of veterans, it's too many veterans, it's the rookies, it's not enough rookies, it's the media putting too much pressure and expecting too much and causing drama. Now, before I'm labeled one of these hot take artists, okay, try to spin something and get clicks and get likes and get follows and all that stuff that, yes, I I definitely try to do, but not in the hot take manner that some will point out to. I'll make my case. I'm not just going to make a statement without presenting my items. But first, in a very law and order, Jack McCoy-esque manner, I'll ask you two simple questions. The first being, in sports, professional sports, of course, who typically gets the burden of the blame when a team loses? Mm, Okay. Mm. I see you all conferring and agreeing that it's usually the best players, the leaders of the team. So I'll now ask you, the people, my second question. Who's been the leaders of this team for the past three years? I can see you're all agreeing that it is indeed Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I'm glad that we could go through this practice now and I will present my case. All right, I I know that was maybe a little obnoxious. I get it. Okay, I do. But this team has been mediocre at best for two seasons. They're 24 and 24 now. They were 36 and 36 last year. They just made it through the play-in tournament last year, only to get bounced in the first round of the playoffs versus the Nets, who were definitely a superior team with one of the greatest players in the world and Kevin Durant. But you're telling me losing in five in the manner that they did with three blowout losses was the best that that Celtics team could do? The best. And I realize Jalen Brown wasn't there, but still, you have a young budding superstar, and that team was blown out three times versus the Nets. This team with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum at the helm and Marcus Smart and whatever you want to call his role, okay, whatever you want to call his role, I I don't care at this point. It's just infuriating that he's here. But whatever it may be, they haven't been able to win in crunch time. They crumble. They should be winning these tight games by now. You shouldn't be having fourth quarter meltdowns where you go from aggressive to timid, watch a lead evaporate, you take your foot off the gas, you basically find a new creative way to lose games instead of put away teams. And that falls on the stability of the leadership. And I'm sorry, you're number one and you're number two guy. That's who it falls on. That's what crunch time is about. Making the right play with the basketball. Now I realize, does that mean every single crunch time game completely falls on the shoulders of the best players? No, we know that's not how it works. But more times than not, Yeah, it does. And I've seen this Celtics team blow double-digit leads more often than I saw Tony Montana put his head down onto a table to snort a white substance in Scarface. That's why opponents come back so frequently against this team. They know that if they hang around enough and they chip away at a lead, they have a chance to win a game in dramatic fashion against a team that has a way of petering in dramatic fashion. By this point in their career, they should have that stabilizing nature to their games, where when things start to go off the rails, they're able to put it back on track, wrap the game up, finish it out, and go home with a win. 
Instead, this team reverts to a brand of basketball that's the complete opposite of what they did to build up these leads that they've had in these games. They go into what I call them when this happens. I call them the Pepto squad because they go into ultimate Pepto mode. When things get a little bit difficult, they feel the nausea, the heartburn, the indigestion, the upset stomach, and then there comes the diarrhea and the team is lost by the end of the day. So what will Brad Stevens head honcho of basketball operations do to help this Pepto squad, right? What will he do? He has to do something, whether it be addition or subtraction. Brad has to be active in his first year here in this position in the upper front office of the Boston Celtics. And he's been out there gauging the trade values of Marcus Smart, Josh Richardson, Peyton Pritchard, Aaron Neesmith, among others, to see what the value for those players are. Brad has to give the perception, the serious perception, that he's willing to make a deal that involves key players, players that have some value. Now, I think that the Celtics have vastly overrated Marcus Smart's value, but Danny Ainge wouldn't trade him for anything the past couple of years. And it wasn't even a discussion point for the Celtics, or not a serious one. So now you have Brad out there gauging Marcus Smart's value, Josh Richardson's value, some of the younger players who were first-round picks and their values, and he's willing to spice things up and at least make some sort of tangible move. I just think they're going to have trouble putting together a package that's enticing and deep enough to make one of these teams trade an impact player like a Jeremiah Grant in Detroit. Ben Simmons, he's off the table now, but Miles Turner, another name that's been out there and linked to the Celtics in the past. I just don't think that if you don't include a Robert Williams or a Jalen Brown, that you're going to be able to get enough in return that's actually going to change the direction that this season's headed. And a report from Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, Woj Bomb, if you will, tweeted out last week or said on one of the programs, did both actually, that the Celtics were gauging the market for every player with the exception of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and to a lesser degree, Robert Williams. So that's going to limit the Celtics market. I mean, if you're talking about landing one of these big guys, Damana Sabonis, another name you could throw out there, it's not going to happen with Marcus Smart, Picks, and and some younger players like Neesmith and Pritchard. You're going to have to include a Jalen Brown, definitely a Robert Williams, to really make that package enticing enough for a team like that to jump. And I don't think the Celtics are ready to do that at this point. I understand if they're not ready to trade Jalen Brown right now because a big offseason trade like that, or I should say a big trade like that, typically happens in the offseason. So we'll wait and see. I just hope that the Celtics are froggy enough that if they get to that point, they'll leap. Because I don't think that this current group is going to be able to move forward together. At some point, you have to be willing to move Jalen Brown. And that's the piece and that's the player that I believe will have to be moved at the end of the day. It's just how long is the Celtics willing to wait? How much longer do you need to go? How much more do you need to see for this organization to look itself in the mirror and say these two just aren't going to gel together well enough on the court to make this work? They're never going to maximize individual strengths in each other enough to have this deadly combo be the deadly combo that we had hoped for and envisioned. This is their fifth season together. If they don't get it by now, I'm sorry, we don't have long enough to wait to see if it works out. You can't just cross your fingers and hope that one day it clicks. The longer you wait, the more you risk one of two things happening. One, their relationship together souring. Right now, it's strong or it looks strong from the outside, 
But the longer you wait and the longer that you don't have success, the more chance that they're going to get unhappy with each other and want to move on. So Jason Tatum gone or Jalen Brown gone, and it could be Jason Tatum asking to leave. And that's not what the Celtics want. That's the last thing that the Celtics actually want. The other problem is, is that the longer you wait, the more that you likely diminish your return because the players aren't flourishing into what they are expected to flourish into together in a good situation in Boston, which is a problem here. Because if you look at the way that the two of them play, when one has a big game, the other one usually doesn't. Then there was another, you know, classic Marcus Smart moment. You know, it was post game after the Celtics beat the Wizards on Sunday, beat up on him pretty good, beat up on him pretty damn good. Jason Tatum scores 51, has 10 rebounds, 7 assists. I know you might be saying, well, you failed to mention that. No, no, you know what? I've seen him score before. I'm not going to do somersaults and jumping jacks because he had a big game. But this one probably was a stress reliever for Jason, who had gone into the game missing 20 straight three-point shots, and he knocked down 9 of his 14 attempts from 3 on the night on his way to 51 points. So this one probably meant a little bit more for him, his teammates, and those around the organization as a sigh of relief that Jason's shooting woes are hopefully now behind him. The humor of the night came from Marcus Smart. And it was humor, but it's also pretty telling to where the Celtics players and the Celtics locker room is at mindset-wise. Marcus postgame had this to say about the mentality of the team. By the way, this is the first time that he's played in six games. He was in the health and safety protocols and dealing with a quad injury. But anyways, I digress. He has this to say about the mentality of the Celtics team. It's us versus everybody. Nobody really believes in us but us on this team. And that's how we feel. We hear the noise. We see it. It is what it is. But it's us first, everybody. That's the mindset we have. It's the mindset we got to keep. And we got to let that fuel us. He goes on to say this. There's always going to be noise. You're always going to be knocked down. But the old saying is, it's not what you do when you get knocked down. It's what you do after you get knocked down. And for us, we've been knocked down a few times this season. But we keep getting up and fighting, and that's what we're going to have to continue to do. Smart also said he had conversations with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, offering words of encouragement to overcome the inconsistent first three months of the season. I could go on and on and on about my feelings and how strongly I feel about what Marcus Smart said. Look, breaking it down, it's us versus everybody. Well, already, that's not factual. It's typically you versus yourselves. So don't talk about how other people are trying to tear you down and everyone else is just making noise and making drama. You guys make the noise. You guys cause the drama. People on the outside and the media as fans, they just talk about what they're seeing on the court each and every night, which is a team that's 24 and 24 and teetering in either direction and never living up to their expectations. So you want to let that fuel you? Great. A lot of teams do, and they're able to jump to the next level. If that's what the Celtics team needs, great. The problem is, is they've said this in the past, and they've gotten kapooey as far as results. So I've heard this before, and it doesn't seem to fuel them. So them talking about how everyone's against them? No, no, you, you guys fight yourselves. You guys have arguments all the time. Team meetings, throwing chairs, film study. It's always you guys versus yourselves. 
So stop pointing the finger at somebody else. They're so soft and so quick to blame other people for their problems. Rectify them yourselves. And then people won't have anything to talk about. All right, I'd like to segue now to a team that is going to make their debut on Boston's Big Four. We could all give them a solid round of applause. They're coming in here, winners of their last 10 of 13 since January 1. That's the Boston Bruins, who closed out a seven-game homestand last night versus the Anaheim. I like to call them Mighty Ducks, but they're just the Ducks. 5-3 loss last night for the Bruins at the Garden. Bruins are now fourth in the Atlantic. They're in striking distance of the Maple Leafs, just three points back. They're not not catching Florida and Tampa. They've separated themselves from the pack. I give the Bruins, excuse me, credit. They trailed not long ago by nine points of, of that third slot in the Atlantic. And they've bounced back to some bad losses just last week. 7-1 debacle versus Carolina. And they respond with a 4-3 win versus the Caps in a game that saw Brad Marchand leave in the second period. Nasty hit. Looked like he could possibly be out for a couple of weeks. And they were able to bounce back, win that game. Then on Saturday afternoon, they had a comeback twice versus Winnipeg. They win that game at the Garden. Tuka stops 22 of 24 shots. We'll get to him in a minute. Marshan returns from that right shoulder injury. Looked like, like I said, a while he would be out. And instead, back next game, logging 19 minutes and 35 seconds of ice time. Tops among all the Bruins forwards. So listen, the Bruins have responded well to losses this season. They've had their ups and downs throughout their season, too, but they're 9-3 and three after losses, and they haven't lost more than two consecutive games this season, which if you really think about all the starts and the stops and the injuries and the protocols and the suspensions, that's quite a feat in and of itself for a Bruins team at, at, that at the beginning of the season didn't look to be off to such a hot start. I'll give you one of my main concerns here with the Bruins, and that has to be goaltending right now. Because listen, Tuca, return, cheap deal. I like him at half a million. He didn't come back looking for an outrageous paycheck. He rehabbed. It was a little quick. I thought I would have liked to see him with a little extra time down there in Providence. I know they were having COVID issues, so they hopped up to the big club and away he went. He's 2-2 two and two in his four starts, 4.28 goals against average, an 844 save percentage. And I... I don't think that he's injured, but I think that he's rusty here. And now you have a situation where you sent Swayman down. You have Linus. I like to call him Linus. I think it's funnier that way. Allmark, who you're paying $5 million a year, $20 million deal for four years. That was an overpay that is going to be a problem for the Bruins in seasons to come. You have Tuca, who's on a reasonable deal, but he's not exactly up to snuff yet. He's not really up to par yet. He's given up five goals and two of his four starts now. And between Tuca and Allmark, you don't really have a goalie that you feel comfortable riding right now or going into the playoffs with. Now, that's a long ways away. I realize it. I'm forecasting a little bit to the future here. So maybe things get right. Maybe Tuca finds his rhythm and off we go. And we have a a deep run here once again for a Stanley Cup. But right now, the picture doesn't look so crystal clear as it relates to the goalie position. I'm not a Tuca hater, okay? I haven't been the biggest Tuca fan, 
because sometimes I think his mentality is is one of an athlete that I just can't relate to. I feel like he's too blasé. But I look at the signing and I say, oh, that's a good signing. How could you not bring him back? Cheap deal. Guy wants to be here. The locker room loves the guy. I don't really completely understand it, but okay, they do. So I think it was a good signing. The mistake to me goes back to the offseason when you hand out $20 million to a goalie that now looks like is a huge overpay. And you had Swayman and you had Dan Vladar. If you didn't want to keep Vladar, you wanted to find a veteran backup. There were cheaper veteran backups that wouldn't hand, uh, wouldn't lock you up in the way that Allmark's contract does now going forward. So I think that's where the mistake was made by the Bruins. Now I question, though, if Tuca is really rusty, how long do they let him ride? Like, how long do they stick with him? He's loved in the locker room by Marchand and Bergeron and Pasternak. They basically did backflips when the guy returned. So if he's still rusty, how long does Bruce Cassidy and company let Tuca stay in between the pipes? He had back-to-back starts because Allmark was shaky versus the Caps. Now Tuca's been shaky in his back-to-back starts here in the past two. So let's see how this plays out going down the stretch. On the bright side, not many players in the NHL are hotter right now, if any, than David Pasternak, who extended with a goal and an assist last night his point streak to six straight games. That makes 12 goals and four assists in 13 games in the month of January. Pasternak's jump-started that second line. And in course, he's also helped jumpstart Taylor Hall, who was a big signing in the offseason, big re-signing in the offseason. Eric Halla had a goal last night. Pasternak was on the assist of that. And it's been great over the years watching that perfection line. Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak having a line that was probably not matched in all of hockey, except for at certain moments during the playoffs, but we don't need to speak about that. But it's been proven that you need more than just one great line. You need some scoring depth. And over the course of Pasternak's career here, they haven't really moved him down to that second line. David Krejci, who's in the check now, had some reaction to it and said, yeah, they didn't want to do that when I was here. And I'm paraphrasing. So he didn't seem too thrilled about it. But the move has helped Pasternak and it's helped line mates. And it's extended that scoring depth which the Bruins are going to need if they're going to make a Stanley Cup run. And in turn, if they can get something out of David, uh, excuse me, DeBrusque on that third line with Charlie Coyle and Steen, maybe you have three lines that can legitimately put the puck in the net. And that would put a lot of pressure on teams here down the stretch. Because this, to me, is the last shot for this veteran group. I mean, Chara's already gone. Bergeron is in the final year of his contract, probably retirement on the horizon for him. Marchand, longer in the tooth, smaller player. And Tuca, well, he's on a half-year deal. You tell me what you think his long-term plan is. So let's see if the Bruins can make a run at it, because like I said, I believe this is their last chance at it. And there you have it, episode seven of Boston's Big Four in the books. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did and you want to hear more, please subscribe and download the show. Apple, Spotify, and Google, basically wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes coming every single Tuesday. And be sure to follow us on social media. We have an Instagram, a Facebook, and an email. Thank you for loaning me your ears and your attention. I know it's valuable. Until next week, Boston, be well, be healthy, be real. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.